morning, faith family. If you got your Bibles, if you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, while you're turning there, let me say hello to those of you joining us in Lakeville, as well as our live venue. And so uh, we're delighted that you've gathered with us this morning. We're in a, a series called The Search, and we're taking a, an honest look at life in a fallen world. And by now, you ought to be seeing Ecclesiastes everywhere. Uh, The reality is a lot of Christians haven't studied the book of Ecclesiastes, and when you start to get in this book, you begin to see it in movies, in songs, in poetry. It really is everywhere. Take, for just example, uh, Shakespeare. I know you were driving to church today saying, maybe we'll get some Shakespeare this morning. But listen to this. It says, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is, that is, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And who knew Shakespeare was Coelith, right? The point is, you ought to be seeing this now everywhere, and what this means is, Christian, get your head out of the sand. If you're struggling with the tone of this book, if you feel like it's a little depressing, if you feel it's it's Eeyore-like, if you feel like it's just down, no, it's honest. It's honest about life in a fallen world. And I have loved teaching this book. In fact, I've had more fun than a preacher should have uh, preaching this book. And, uh, and a lot of you have commented just how much you're enjoying this and because it's so real life. It is where people are. And Coelith is a, a, an honest guy who's looking at life in a fallen world, and his conclusion is it's vanity. He's the main character of this book. And some of you, because you may be here for the first time, you're going to think, well, where, I don't see the word Coelith. Where is it? Coelith is a Hebrew name that's translated the preacher. The preacher, that's the English text, because his name, Coelith, means one who gathers or assembles. And so that's why, since there's no English name for Coelith, they don't put Coelith, they just simply say the preacher. They translate his name. He's the main character. He's like a modern-day celebrity. So in our day, it would be like we're talking about LeBron James or... Um, you know, Brad Pitt or some type of Tom Brady, some type of really famous, successful person that a lot of people would say, man, I'd love to have just a little bit of their life. I mean, they have it all. They have, according to the world, the good life. And the, this father is using this famous character, Coelith, to do what? Teach his son, which we learn at the end of the book, about how you find meaning in a fallen world, which is something every one of you is trying to do. And what's been so interesting is Coelith has tried the same things you try, the same things I try. Knowledge, um, love, success, right? Pleasure. He's looked at all these things that we look at, and his search is going to continue this morning. Let's pick it up as we will finally finish chapter 2. I know you're thinking, there's 12 chapters! Like we'll be here next Christmas, right? We'll speed up after this week, but the first two chapters are critical. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able, and let's pick up at verse 18 as we continue this search for meaning. He says, I hated all the toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. In the night his heart does not find rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. So pray with me now and pray for me as we go to the word in prayer. God, what a joy it is to be together. Um, Supernatural things happen in this moment. Lives are set free. Eyes begin to see what life is all about. And so, Holy Spirit, we plead for you to come and do what certainly I can't do and am desperate for you to do. Because the truth is, everybody in this room, more than they know, is searching for meaning. And I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, you would speak to us in terms of where meaning is ultimately found. Transform lives today. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Sidney Pollack um, spent most of his life in the film industry. Uh, You may recognize him. Uh, And when it comes to the film industry, he did everything. And I mean everything. He directed films. He produced films. He acted in films. In fact, here's just a, a sample of his resume. Um, He directed over 20 films and 10 television shows. He produced over 40 films, and he acted in over 30. That's a lot of film, a lot of movies. Uh, You will recognize some of his most notable works, which would include things like The Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, Sense and Sensibility, Searching for Bobby Fischer, and The Interpreter. Some of you may even remember uh, in 1985, one of his works uh, called Out of Africa uh, earned him an Academy Award both in directing and in producing. In fact, he was even up for an Oscar nomination for Best Director in his work of Tootsie. The point is, Pollock was a man whose life's work was film. It was his passion. It was his drive in life. Uh, It was was really his love. His love was his work for making film. So much so, Pollock's friends described him, and I wonder if you know anybody like this, they described him as a man who could not slow down. Do you know anybody like that? They said he's obsessed with what he does. He's a workaholic. In fact, it came with great cost. What many said is he was so obsessed with his work that a distance grew between him and his family. 
Before he died, he was interviewed about his workaholism. He was interviewed about his obsession for making films. And this is what he said, and it is so insightful and so Ecclesiastes. Here's what he says, quote, Every time I made a picture, a movie, a film, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I've earned my stay for another year or so. If I stopped making films, that is working, I wouldn't be able to justify my existence. If I stopped making movies, if I stopped working, there would be nothing in life for me to do. Now, what's behind that? What's underneath the surface of that? What's he saying? What's he crying out? He's saying, my existence, my identity, the way in which I find meaning is directly related to my work. It's directly related to my vocation. You see, just like education, just like pleasure, just like love, just like success... Work and vocation is a very common thing for people to look to to provide meaning in life. And that makes sense given that work is such a, uh, uh, um, a strong uh, portion of our life. Listen to just some stats from Business Insider. We spend 110,000 hours of our life at work. You didn't know you worked that hard, did you? Stats show us that you'll have seven to eight jobs by the age of 30. That now, since 1970, people work 200 more hours a year. 57% of vacation days are never used. 25% of people check in to work hourly by phone or email while they're on vacation. Any of you ever guilty of that? Don't point, right? You're constantly checking in. Now, this isn't even about America, but I found it interesting. In Japan, 10,000 people a year die at their desk. What a way to go. I mean, just you're just working and pop. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, our culture is obsessed with work, obsessed with vocation. Let me give you just a little quiz, and then we'll get to the text here as to discovering or discerning how much work plays a part of your life? So here's some questions. Do you take work with you on the weekends um, or on vacation? Have you ever been on vacation and found yourself working? Is work the activity that you like to do the best or talk about the most? Has your family given up expecting you to be home on time? Don't. Uh, that's convicting. Do you, do you get impatient with people who have other priorities besides work when you're at work? Meaning, quit, quit sloughing off. Take this serious. Don't you understand we're here to work? Playing solitaire, right? Does anybody even play solitaire anymore? Anyways, have, you, have your long hours hurt your family or other relationships? Do you think about your work while driving, falling asleep, or when you're talking to others, meaning you're not even paying attention to what they're saying because you're thinking about work. Or now that you've retired, do you find yourself restless or needing something to do? Guilty. Not with the retirement one, but every other one. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. All these topics are going to hit people differently. 
And this is going to hit a lot of you right between the eyes. Because the tendency is to say, if I'm doing something meaningful, then I have meaning. If I'm doing something satisfying, then I'll be satisfied, right? If I do something significant, then I'll be significant. You, more than you realize, look to work What you do, your vocation to provide meaning in life. And that's exactly what Coelith does in these verses. Now listen, this is very, very hard to see. It's kind of hidden in the text. So I want to see if I can draw it out as to what the main focus of this passage is. So look at verse 18. I'm just going to read a few phrases. In verse 18, you find this language. All my toil in which I toiled. Verse 19 The master of all for which I toiled. Look at verse 20. Over all the toil of my labors. Verse 21. A person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge. Who did not toil for it. Verse 22. All the toil and striving of heart. That he toils beneath the sun. Verse 23. His work is a vexation. Verse 24. Find enjoyment in his toil. Verse 26. The business of gathering and collecting. You see, that's very, very hard to see the point of the passage. Are you sensing the sarcasm? Because I'm laying it on thick. Eleven times! Eleven times he says it in just a few verses. In other words, you don't need a degree in theology to know the point of this passage. It's the confession of a workaholic. I toil, I toil, I toil, I toil, I work, I work, I work, I work, I gather and I collect. This is someone who has given his life to say, maybe I'll find meaning. Maybe I'll make sense out of a life that doesn't make sense through my work. And boy, do we do the same thing. Listen to what Henry Ford said. Ecclesiastes language. He says, I do not believe a man can ever leave his business. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Thinking men know work is the salvation of the race. Morally, physically, and socially. Work does more than get us our living, it gets us our life. What? What kind of language is that? What's he saying? Work is salvation-like. Work provides, vocation provides something for you that feels like a savior. A small S Savior, right? Why would Coelith turn his attention and why would you turn your attention to toil and work to find meaning? Four reasons why we all do the same thing Coelith does. Number one is work brings security. Work brings security. In other words, here's what we feel like. If I have a job, and particularly a good job, then a lot of my worries go away. Now, sure, there are some worries and stress that comes with work, but it's a lot better than not having a job. If you've ever gone through a season of unemployment, you know the feeling of this, right? Where where having a job gives us a sense of security that everything's going to be okay. It's Savior-like. Number two is work brings significance. Work brings significance. Here's what I mean. It's what I said earlier. If I'm doing something significant, then I feel like I'm significant. And this is true. Let me prove it for you. Everybody right here. 
There is a response to this question every time, and it is either outwardly or inwardly. But everybody responds that you talk to when you answer this question, and here's the question. So tell me, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? I'm a doctor. Oh, that's awesome. How cool is that? That's fantastic. Man, I'm so thankful for you. I'm a waitress. Oh, that's cool. I'm not saying that's how we should be. I'm saying that that's how people respond, either outwardly or inwardly. Or or you say, I'm in the military. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for your service. And we should thank our men and women uh, who provide service in the military. We should absolutely do that. But you compare that to, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Oh, okay. That's good. And the reason why I bring that out is because I'm telling you, there are stay-at-home moms in American culture who feel like people don't think they're significant. It's absolutely true. They feel like, I'm not doing anything significant, so am I significant? They struggle with that. The worst, by the way, the worst answer you can give to that question is, I'm a pastor. (laughs) If you want some strange looks, just say that, even if it's not true. Okay? (laughs) Just do it for the fun of it, all right? I mean, people say, what do you do for a living? And their facial expression is priceless. I'm a pastor. Oh! So how about those Vikings, all right? I mean, let's change the subject. I don't even know. I'm uncomfortable. How do I talk to this guy, right? Why? And here's the point that I'm proving, and you know it to be true, that our culture has categories of significance determined by vocation. I ain't saying it's right. I'm saying it's how it is. People will say, if I do something that's significant, I feel significant, or people will view me as significant. Work has a way of feeling so Savior-like. Number three is work brings success. Work brings success. By that I mean uh, we love the feeling of I did it, I built it, I made it. For me, it's like the manuscript's done. The sermon is finished. Now I'm ready. For you, it may be I finished the song. I closed the deal. I've harvested the crops. I got the kids ready and now they're on the bus. And that feeling like, okay, I'm done. It's, it's, uh, it's, it can be an addicting feeling, right? That feeling of success, that feeling of accomplishment as it relates to vocation and work. It's why, by the way, you have a tendency to turn your vacation into accomplishments. I had a great vacation. Let me tell you all that I did. Let me tell you how I turned leisure into being tired, How many of you have ever said, I need a vacation from my vacation? Why? Because you turned your rest into work. You totally did. Why? Because you got to have that feeling when vacation is done, like I did something. We accomplished the mountain. I'm tired and I'm exhausted going back to work, but at least I had leisure. What? You've got to have that feeling, and I've got to have that feeling of success. And in that way, work is Savior-like. Here's the last one, is work brings satisfaction. Look at verse um, 24 in chapter 2. I'll show you where I get this in the text. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat 
and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So he's talking about the, the benefits that come from work. Right, that, that There's a satisfaction that comes. In other words, let me say it this way. It may not be your work. It may be simply what you can do because of your work. Does that make sense? It, it's the benefits you get because you work so hard, your toil, that you're able to then enjoy. So for some of you, you work just so you can hear that sound. You know that sound, that ding of that golf club hitting that ball straight into the woods, right? I mean, you know that feeling of, I'm terrible, but boy, I love playing golf, right? Or for some of you, it's that vacation at the beach. You work so hard just so you can have that view for a few days. Others of you, it's this. You work so that you can enjoy chocolate. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, that will solve a lot of the problems of your life right there, I'll tell you. Some of you, it's enjoying that nice meal, Mm, go ahead, let it out. Confession is good for the soul, right? Let it out. Fan, that family trip that you've been wanting to take your kids on, or you work so that you can go fishing. I don't know who that guy is, but he's an awfully good fisherman. I'm just glad the guy let me hold it to take the picture. Anyways. Or this is Minnesota culture so we can sit around the fire pit with our family and friends and feel or say this. This is as good as it gets. What is it that you say that about? Because everybody says that. And listen to that language. This is as good as it gets. Oh, the golf course. Oh, the, the vacation. Oh, the, the bass. Oh, the, the, the chocolate. This is as good as it gets. What are you saying? It may not be work, but it is what I can get from work that I enjoy out of life. American author, a man by the name of Studs Turkle. Now, there's a name I enjoy. Studs Turkle. How would you like the name Studs? Anyways, here's what he's got a really interesting book on work. And look at what this is the perfect summary of what I'm saying. It's so good. Listen to his language. He says, Work is about a search. A search for what? For daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash. For astonishment rather than torpor. In short, it's a search for what? Listen, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Now by now, I should have everybody in some sense that work is a small s savior that says, if you have me, then you'll find meaning. And that's all what Quelleth is doing. Now let me say this quickly and then we'll move to the to, to Quelleth summary. Um, it, you can answer this out loud in Lakeville and, and, and Venue. Is knowledge a bad thing? No. Is pleasure a bad thing? No. Is success a bad thing? No. Is love a bad thing? Of course not. Is work a bad thing? No. What have I told you every single week? Coelho's point is not these things are bad. He's simply saying, can they provide meaning? 
work is a good thing. Work is pre-fall. God gave Adam and Eve work to do before the curse of sin entered in. Are you with me? In other words, work wasn't a consequence of sin. It was the the curse, uh, the, the frustration of work that becomes the consequence of sin. But work is a good thing. Here's the problem. Everybody right here. Romans 1 says we worship creation rather than the Creator. So what happened is we took work, which was meant to worship God, and we made it God. Preach, preacher. Anybody? We made work God. We made work Savior-like. That's the issue. Can it be a Savior? Can it provide meaning? And here's Coelho's conclusion, verse 26. For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Summary statement, this also is vanity, that is meaningless, and striving after the wind. So Coelheth, toil, 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 toil. Work, 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 work. Conclusion, vanity. Meaningless. And here's what he's going to tell us. We'll have some fun here. Uh, Here's what he's going to tell us. Work doesn't work, and the benefits don't benefit. Work doesn't work, and the benefits don't benefit. Four reasons why work doesn't work, and one reason why the benefits don't benefit. Now, I need to ask you this right now, okay? Do you want the full version of Coelith, or do you want the soft version? I'm asking you, are you tough enough to handle the full version all right, show of hands here, venue Lakeville, show of hands. Who wants the full version of Coelith? All right, you asked for it. Here we go. <laughs> Don't blame me. Don't blame me. Here's what Coelith says. Here's why work doesn't work. Number one, the worker dies. <laughs> Which doesn't shock you by now if you know Coelith. Look back at verse 16 of chapter 2. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Oh, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and striving after wind. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. Why? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who what? Will come after me. What's he talking about? Death. He's always talking about death, right? He's obsessed with it because that's the ultimate ace of spades. So here's what happens. What happens to somebody who works 80 hours a week? They die. What happens to somebody who works 40 hours a week? They die. And 1,000 years after you die, what good will your work have been? That's what he's saying. Listen, listen to, there's a band called Angels and Airwaves. Uh, They've got a song called Epic Holiday that is so Ecclesiastes, particularly as it relates to work. So I'm going to ask them to have the volume up a little bit more because I want you to listen specifically to the words of this song and tell me that it's not what Coelith is saying. Take a listen.
All right, did you hear those lyrics? Here's what they are. Every single day, every nine to five, everybody works it hard and then they finally die. That's what Coelph is saying. And there's no remorse for the slightest sound, forever cool with the way it all breaks up and down. So what do you do? If all you're going to do is work nine to five and then die, here's what you do. Let's start a riot. Nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. Life's just a game. It's just one epic holiday. Isn't that Ecclesiastes? You're just going to work nine to five and then you're going to die. So what's really the point? You might as well have a really long holiday. Number two, not only does the worker die, you might say at this point, yeah, but I'm going to beat death. I'll beat death, but here's how I'll beat death, Coelith. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have a legacy. I'm going to work really, really hard, and I'm going to gain all this stuff, and then I'm going to leave it to somebody, and my legacy will be the way I beat death. And Coelith would say to you, yeah, but the likelihood, the high likelihood is this. You're going to leave it to a moron. That's the likelihood. It's in the text. It's in the text. Verse 18, I hated all the toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And you know this to be true in all kinds of ways of life. The coach builds the winning program and the next coach is a loser. Or you build the company and the next guy runs it in the ground. You save the fortune and the next person invested in Kmart. No offense if you work at Kmart. One president passes a bill, the next one overturns it. Parents have an inheritance, leave it to their children, and they squander it. Or, hypothetically, your name is Roger, and you pastored a church faithfully for 25 years in Burnsville. (laughs) Hypothetically. And you worked so hard for 23 years only for it to be turned over to a redneck from Tennessee. <laughs> Hypothetically, of course. I mean, you know Roger has to leave every Vanity, 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 says the preacher, right? I mean, there's just no guarantee who's coming behind me. And this is true because Coelith was a Coelith is, a, is a, a parallel to Solomon, as I've told you several times. And do you know what happened after Solomon died? Forty years of peace while Solomon is king. He dies. Rehoboam, his son, inherits everything he'd worked for. And his father David, his grandfather David. And he has wise counsels and he has unwise counsels. And guess who he listens to? The unwise counsel. And guess what's happened? Civil war breaks out and much of the kingdom is lost. Here's the point. There is no guarantee what you leave behind will last. And the likelihood is it won't. Now you'd probably say, yeah, but my children are different. (laughs) Wink, wink. I mean, not my children, my grandchildren. Now, if I leave all this to them, it will uh, will certainly survive. And Quelth would say, okay, but even if it does, there's still a problem. Are you ready? They didn't earn it. And that's a problem in wisdom literature. Look at verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Why? Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill 
must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Here's what Coelth is saying. So here's your options. You ready for your chipper fortune cookie moment of the day? Here it is. Work all your life, die, and either leave it to a moron or someone who didn't earn it. Think, for instance, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. Whether you like Apple or don't like Apple is beside the point. Here you have someone who built a successful business and turned it over to another man who, guess what, gets to make millions on day one. He didn't build the company, and yet he inherits it all. Coella says that is is insane. That is real life, and it is vanity. Number four, on top of all that, as if it weren't bad enough, work is difficult. Verse 22, what is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Notice this, even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What's he saying? On top of all this, work is stressful. Uh, if you remember Norm from the TV show Cheers, do you remember that, that, that episode or that, uh, that series? Norm would always say this, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. <laughs> to describe the hustle and bustle and the fight that it is to work. You worry about losing your job. Work is always on your mind. That's why the text says you don't sleep at night. You don't get paid enough. If your boss is here, don't amen that. Uh, You worry, will your company last? Is it going to make it? You deal with rude customers, selfish employees, changing technology, competing brands, rude customers, routine labor, stressful deadlines, rude customers, dysfunctional teams, outdated products, and by the way, did I mention rude customers? And on top of that, most of us work with a bunch of num-nums. What is this? Happy holidays, Dwight. But do not open it till Christmas. You're so pathetic. How long did this take you? Three hours? Five minutes, actually. I am a black belt in gift wrapping. Yeah, no such thing. They don't give out black belts for things that are stupid. Well, I hope it was worth it, because I'm going to take it apart in about five minutes. I think I'll take it a little bit longer than that. Really? If I can skin a mule deer in less than ten minutes, I ought to be able to cut my... How can you do a sermon on work and not include the office, right? Our buddy Studs Turkle, let's bring old Studs back here. Here's what he says. Work by its very nature is about violence to the spirit as well as the body. It's about ulcers and accidents, shouting matches and fist fights. I'm not sure where he works. Nervous breakdowns and daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among a great many of us. Now, don't blame me. You asked for it. That's full Koheleth, isn't it? There's no way work will work. It can't be a Savior. Amen? When you say, well, but I work for the benefits. Well, here's one reason why the benefits don't benefit. Uh, Look at verse um, 24. We'll read just 24 and 25. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. There's the benefits of work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. That sounds nice. 
For apart from him, who can enjoy uh, or who can have, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Right? So why do the benefits not benefit? The one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give the one who pleases God. Okay, wow. I don't have time to unpack all this. Let me say this as quickly as I can. Um, So here's what he's saying, and then I'm going to back it up uh, as quickly as I can. What he's saying is this. The reason you can't live for benefits is because there's no guarantee you're going to be able to enjoy them. You can't live for the benefits of work because there's no guarantee you're going to enjoy the benefits of work. Now, let me show you where I'm getting that from, and I'm telling you, I'm leaving a lot out, but, but... What frustrates me about quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes when people kind of pluck out verses is they rip it out of context and structure. And so a lot of people pluck this out and see, see, Coelith is being nice, that God gives enjoyment and, and all this. Yeah, yeah, but there's two problems. Number one is the overall point of Ecclesiastes in terms of Coelith. And number two is terms in wisdom literature that are different in other places in the Bible. In other words, uh, this big word, Biblical Hermeneutics 101, is you've got to interpret it in light of the genre that it is. Wisdom literature is different than epistles, is different than prophetic books. Do you see? All right. So what's the point? The point of the book is this. All is vanity, or the point of Coelho's search. His motto Do you remember back in chapter 1 is life is bent and it can't be made straight. It's a riddle you can't solve and a question you can't answer. And why is it that way? Do you remember what he said in chapter 1 and chapter 5? God made it this way. If you don't like how the store is arranged, blame the manager. If you don't like how life in the world is, blame the one who created life. So, So don't think Coelith is all of a sudden optimistic here about God. And I'll tell you the point in a minute. The second thing is wisdom literature. The phrase, the one who pleases him in wisdom literature is this, the one who has God's favor. And it's also this. I need you to look here for just a minute. The sinner is not sinner the way Paul means that term, but sinner in wisdom literature is someone who lacks the favor of God. And this is true in Proverbs as well. So what's the point? Everybody right here. What Coelith is saying is, when you take an honest look at life in the fallen world, what it looks like is this. God favors some people and He doesn't favor others. Some people work and they get roses. Some people work and they get thorns. It's like life is a roulette game. It's a crapshoot. You don't know if you work all your life whether or not you'll be able to enjoy the benefits or not. Because, and even Christians are honest about this. You look at people and you say, why do they prosper and they don't? Well, the only answer is God must favor them and not favor me. Do you see what he's saying? I mean, he's saying if you live for playing golf, what are you going to do after the accident when you can't play anymore? As good as it gets is chocolate. And then chemo treatments take your taste buds away. Don't you see? If you live for the benefits, there's no guarantee you'll be able to enjoy the benefits. Because life looks like a roulette game. And God favors some and He doesn't favor others. And so He comes to you at your Thanksgiving meal and He just goes, blah. He lays all this out and says, I've toiled, 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 toiled. Here's why work doesn't work, and here's why the benefits don't benefit. What do you say? 
you better have something to say. And you better have something to say because there are all kinds of people who are asking this question. Who have bought the lie that work will be my Savior. And here's what you say. 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there or follow on the screen and we will close with this. 1 Corinthians 15. What Koheleth has said in Ecclesiastes is this. That... It's all about life under the sun, that this is all there is, okay? Uh, It's life under the sun, and this life is all we've got, and that means work is meaningless because you're going to die, right? So that's what he's saying. And now notice what Paul says. Oh, can we move the third service to 3 o'clock this afternoon because, (laughs) gosh, I wish I had more time on this. But follow along as I'm going to go fast, okay? Here's what I'm going to show you. Paul agrees with everything Coelith says. Look at verse 14. I already got an amen. Let's go. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Does that language sound familiar? Yeah. Vanity? And your faith is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So right here, here's the point. If there's no life after death, if there, this life is all there is, if death is the end, vanity, 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 vanity. Preaching is vanity. Faith is vanity. Your being here today, vanity. Your work on Monday morning, vanity. If this life is all there is. In fact, look at verse 19. For if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so what's the conclusion? If this life is all there is, verse 32. Look at the phrase, if the dead are not raised, midway through, if the dead are not raised, do what? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Who does that sound like? Coelith. Just enjoy what you can while you can because there's no life beyond this. Paul is saying everything that Coelith is saying. Paul is saying he's exactly right. And then Paul drops a bomb, a huge, huge gospel bomb that changes everything. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What does that mean? What does that mean? Hear me. There is more to life than this life. It's more than life under the sun. There's more than this life only. This life's not all there is, which is why we're looking to eternity. Look at verse 54. I'm having so much fun. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks, but thanks, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody fired up this morning about your future? Anybody fired up about a future resurrection? Anybody, Christian, fired up that what you're going through now is not what you will go through for eternity? And one day you will look back and this life will be like a candle in Central Park in light of the eternity God has waiting for you. You can get excited about that. That's all right. 
If you don't get excited about that, I'm going to come kick you, all right? That's the best news in the world. And you say, well, hallelujah, praise God, we clapped. But what does that have to do with work? I thought you said that Paul is saying the same thing as Coelith. Well, notice what he says in light of the resurrection. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not vanity. Because Jesus changes everything. Listen to me. If you're here and you don't have Jesus, you're here and you don't have Jesus, the reality is you are on a path that is running straight for meaninglessness. Because the best you got is enjoy this temporary life until death comes knocking. But if you've got Jesus and the promise of a future in Him, it changes everything about your life right now. Amen? Amen. It transforms your life and it transforms your work in these four extremely quick ways. Because now you begin to see that your work is about eternity. That is, you're working in preparation for a kingdom. Can I just give you some more good news this morning while I'm giving you some good news? Hey, listen, you ain't preparing yourself to go to a bunch of clouds and peel grapes and play a harp and listen to an unending choir practice. No offense if you're in the choir, all right? You know what you're preparing for? A kingdom. A city of God. And do you know what you're going to do in that kingdom? You're going to work. But here's the beauty. You're going to work without the curse of sin. You know what that means? What you're doing now is preparing you for then. And laziness is nothing more a sign that you're not ready for the kingdom of God. Because you haven't understood how the resurrection changes everything. Labor is not in vain when you know Jesus is alive and well. You begin to see now in light of then. Number two is, and this is big, work in your identity. Listen, God told Adam and Eve to work, not to become an image bearer, but to work because they were image bearers. Here's what I mean for that. Okay, this is huge, huge, huge. Can I just tell you, listen, I walked out of here a few moments ago after the first service, and there was an older gentleman in the hallway waiting on me, tears just flowing because he's retired, and he has struggled with feeling like he matters. And you know what? He was so rejoicing this morning because of this very thing. You don't need a job to be significant because you have Jesus. He's your significance. And so whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a truck driver, a waitress, a doctor, or even a pastor, your significance isn't found in a vocation. It's found in the victory of the cross. And when you rest in that, it will change how you view your job. Number three is work and rest. I'll just say quickly, when work is not about you, when work is not about this life, then you can actually enjoy this life. Because the words, it is finished, applies to you. And the greatest work has already been done, so there remains therefore a rest for the people 
of God. And lastly, work and enjoyment. That is when Jesus is your ultimate treasure, when he's your ultimate pleasure, then and only then can you really enjoy chocolate. Because you don't need chocolate to live for. You enjoy chocolate because it's a gift that your Heavenly Father has given you to enjoy. And if it gets taken away because of the chemo treatments, it doesn't matter because you weren't living for that anyways. He's your ultimate pleasure, do you see? If you're in the accident and all of a sudden you can't play golf anymore, ultimately it doesn't matter, though you'd like to play again, but he's your ultimate pleasure, so you can rest in that. Resurrection changes everything, brother. It changes everything. Here's the question. Has it changed you? Has it changed you? Coelith gets to the end of his search of toil, 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 and he says, just like Sidney Pollock, maybe, maybe, maybe I can justify my existence if I work hard. And the conclusion is, it doesn't and it never will. And here's why, and I leave you with this. Hear this statement. You, you listening? Meaning cannot be earned. It can only be received in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Him, you can, as the old hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word to us this morning. It's so, it's so convicting. It's so real life. It's so transforming as we begin to see work in its proper perspective. My guess is there are many here today that um, more than they realize, their heart has been looking to their vocation, to their work, to give them a sense of a, of, of a save, salvation type feeling. But there's only one Savior because there's an empty tomb in the Middle East. And the only thing that's going to fill us is the man who walked out of that grave. And because of His resurrection, because there's more than just life under the sun, then we know our labor is not in vain. I pray for the one this morning who doesn't know Christ, who needs today to bow the knee to Jesus and have the resurrection totally transform their life forever and how they see their life and how it's lived. There are others in this room that have just been prone to forget uh, how Monday matters in light of eternity. So Spirit, give us that perspective. Work and move in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.